I'm so popular. Last week on the show, we started off the season by starting over, and today we are going to search for a reason to fight to survive with a discussion of the 2002 to 2003 Japanese tokusatsu drama series, Kamen Rider Yuki. And I'm joined by a special returning guest. Who are you? Uh, I'm, I'm Yik. Hi, Yurk. Welcome back. It's so nice to have you here again. Thank you. It's um, it's a real uh, privilege to be back on uh, I'm So Popular, one of one of the great podcasts. Thank you. I'm inclined to agree. But you have just started one of the great podcasts um, since the last time we spoke here. Tell me more about what you've been doing there. Um, thank you so much. It's uh, it's called Bistro California. Uh, it's basically like you know it's heavily influenced by tpn and i'm so popular mm-hmm. you know it's basically <laughs> basically the same format um and it's like you know it's for me it's about like trying to uh what, what's like exciting to me about your show and jack's show is like the idea of like creating a kind of canon uh and there being a sort of implicit sensibility that's like revealed over time absolutely uh and how then new things fit into that so that's kind of what interests me about (laughs) basically (laughs) imposing my sensibility on people um but you came on you came on for my jackie levin angela carter episode which is like a personal favorite of mine um and uh we we have succeeded every now and again uh i get like a dm from somebody telling me that they they like uh checked out levin and are now a fan um and I also been meaning I've wanted to like tell you for ages, but I wanted to like save it for like a an episode of either of our shows that you were on to tell you. But I was playing that episode to my um, like w- one of my closest friends, um, actually my my very first girlfriend. Uh, like we're no longer together, oh. but we, you know, but she's oh. a Levin fan as well. And uh, I I was like kind of skipping around to the like produced bits that I do like the interlude and stuff, but. Mm-hmm. Um, so I showed her because I used that reading of Angela Carter. That's right. That you did in the episode, and she was like commenting on how beautiful your voice is. She was saying <laughs> you have such a lovely voice. She was really, it really like affected her. Um, oh. and uh, I completely agree. So yeah, thank you, thank you so well, much for coming sweet on. Of her, yeah. No, it was my pleasure. Um, reading the Angela Carter was so fun and interesting. Really bizarre libidinal stuff that I had never experienced before, and um, it was such a delight to jump into the discography of a new artist. And even just like listening to the album several times, when I go to Spotify now, it always tells me it's like you are in the top one percent of like Jackie. Yeah. And so I was like, oh wow, really? Yeah. That's no good if I'm up there. <laughs> but you no, know, everyone should check out your show. It's fantastic. Um but today we are doing something really, really serious. I'm finally talking about Tokusatsu on this show. 
Um, I have gone through the deepest layers of Japanese media autism on this show so far. I've talked about some of the most, uh, like, bizarre and unwieldy idols and anime and film, but I think Tokusatsu takes the cake for the most unbearably autistic form of media (laughs) with one of the highest... um, learning curves it you have to kind of bully yourself into watching it but once you can figure out how to swallow the whole bite down it is truly remarkable but before we talk about common rider what is your experience with tokusatsu in the uk because you said you'd heard of common rider before yeah it's really strange i have these kind of like almost pre-consciousness memories of <laughs> watching a Kamen Rider series on British television when I was a kid, uh, like, presumably dubbed. I mean, it must have been. Like, um, I had a Kamen Rider toy, like an action figure. Um, it, I think in the UK it was, like, The Masked Rider was mm-hmm. the name of it. Like, uh, and it was a... I think maybe it was, I don't know if it was like the original series or a very early one. It was like the black and green costume. Um, And obviously like it's kind of like based on a kind of grasshopper, right? So yeah, that's the original, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I I used to watch that a lot. I was obsessed with Power Rangers. Like Power Rangers had a kind of enormous influence on me. And I can still remember almost like, the the like visceral shock of excitement that like just the the sh- the color and the shininess of the the armor like the helmets um all of that stuff would have on me as a kid it was really really like profound and mm-hmm. even then i mean like we were talking about in the in the, on twitter like in the dms about like power rangers and stuff i think when we were kind of coming up well when you you were coming up with the episode concept and you posted this like one picture of the Power Rangers, and uh, th- there's there's like still to me I think I, like we said this, but there's some kind of like sugary confectionery element to them, like with the way yeah you look like they it looks like you can eat them they look delicious like I mean I don't mean this in like a <laughs> like <laughs> like there's something about like that those vivid like the ice cream pink and the black and the like the, all the colors like pop so much against each other you know yeah and uh i think it's like instilled in me a kind of lifelong uh i i love it when something identical is replicated in the same color lots of in, in different colors lots of times mm-hmm. you know like i it's uh there's something about like the um i don't know there's not to sound pretentious, but there's there's like a kind of like semiotics of like costume and color going on with these mm-hmm. shows that I just find like so fascinating and interesting. Um, and I feel uh, exactly the same way. Yeah, like I think my exposure was the same because probably most Americans, if not you know most citizens of the world, will unknow unknowingly make contact with Tokusatsu at a young age through Power Rangers yeah. because. The West imported the Japanese tokusatsu series Super Sentai, um, specifically the Jew Ranger series, <laughs> the Jew Ranger series from like, <laughs> 1996 or four, and they used all of the original masked fighting sequences and then filmed the scantest sequences of Americans outside of the costumes interacting with each other and made 
um, new plots. So it's this really strange entrance into the medium because you get this strange dream universe of uh, Japan and fictional California colliding yes. and melting into I'm... an uncanny, <laughs> like vibrantly colored, like sex world. I don't know what it is, but it is so uniquely uncanny and kind of disquieting that it does burrow into your brain. Yeah, well, this is the other thing where all of the fight scenes take place in these kind of like abstract liminal green zones or like yeah. or like Japanese apartment complexes and stuff like that, right? And it's like, you just think back, like, what is like the geography here, right? You have this like Cal- <laughs> Californian, like small town American USA place but then like adjacent to that it's just like random bits of like japanese city like displaced yeah. from time it's, it's like it's like yeah. i'm tommy and i'm going to the martial arts contest at the 90s juice bar and then he's like oh i have to fight monsters now on the top of a japanese warehouse with like weird empty apartments in the background and the footage is notably three years older than the rest of the show yeah so it's very strange and i i understand kind of why i had an impulse to get drawn back into tokusatsu and to briefly explain what it is it simply means special effects so tokusatsu is a special effects series and it was most notably kind of pioneered through things like the original Godzilla is Tokusatsu, mm-hmm. and following that, the Ultraman series, which was recently updated by Ano Hideaki in his um, Shin Heroes series. And it's been a really prominent part of Japanese media for basically the entire post-war period. Um, but with the West and Japan awkwardly interacting and exchanging this... Uh, weird medium it kind of dilutes itself but the basics are that masked heroes in extremely form-fitting armor and helmets fighting elaborately costumed monsters and sometimes they're really big but not necessarily and And i i ended up revisiting this form and medium because I read a manga by the director of Evangelion, Ano Hideaki, as I mentioned. She wrote a manga about Ano and her life being married to him and and, uh, coping and putting up with him. And it kind of serves as like a encyclopedia for all of his influences. So he is obsessed with Kamen Rider to the point that he literally has like the belt that you do your henshin in, and he has a costume that he'll wear in public, apparently. And um, it's all... He's so passionate about it that I said, okay, I have to look into this. And that must have been back in college, and um, it is certainly something strange. But um, what do you kind of make, generally, of this form and medium? Because it's probably quite foreign to you watching it yes. in Japanese and removed from the, the Western point of view. Part of the fun of it for me is just that, like, you know, anime obviously has, is a bit more kind of, like, naturalized or a bit more, mm-hmm. like, I mean, there are, there are qualities to anime and, and, like, you can go further into it depending on, like, what series you're watching or whatever that still register as a bit alien or different. There's still that in- enjoyment of, like, engaging with a, a kind of mm-hmm. other cultural product, right? But, like, it's a little bit more 
familiar, a little bit more like naturalized, and it has a bit more of a kind of like it's like the a, a kind of uh, the stereotypical like weeb kind of thing. It, it's like more of a a presence in Western popular culture, I think. Right, mm-hmm. basically. So this feels like something that's much more. It, it's like closer to um, Japanese pop culture and the the sort of like grammar of the storytelling and the visuals and stuff Mm -hmm. like that i'd imagine like with the exception of like real enthusiasts who like seek it out in the west it feels a lot more something that's like a contained japanese cultural phenomenon it hasn't really like absolutely translated across so that was like no (laughs) it it was like interesting to me as like just a a, like exotic form of like storytelling right um Mm -hmm. and you were talking about how it's like this process of like there being a kind of tedium to it or like there being it, it being a kind of difficult media to get to grips with and I, I did find that like I found that there were like things I had to get used to or, or whatever but at the same time you do experience these moments where something in you kind of gives way and because initially like my way into it was kind of like just in this like arty like oh i love the like texture of this or whatever but there right. are also these moments where like the drama of it really did just kind of suddenly make sense and it, <laughs> it was like thrilling and and like exciting in its on its own terms you know um so yeah it was really like interesting and fun experience um i'm glad you yeah. enjoyed the experience because i think most people who aren't open to new artistic experiences would be so offended by this that they would never make it <laughs> more than three episodes in. Um, I feel like Japanese dra- dramatic series are extremely compelling, very melodramatic. They are texturally rich, and you were mentioning like they're like visually strange and appealing, and they feel entirely like their own creation, but people are very closed off to forms that are unfamiliar to them and i think if you just put this in front of someone with no context it would be baffling to the point that they would not be able to continue watching it so i'm very <laughs> thankful that you you persevered <laughs> i was no i was like determined i was like committed to it you know like i wanted to like see it through um mm-hmm. it's like reading a thousand page novel really yeah it's just as long um you know it's 50 episodes they run a common writer series every year, um, all year long, and then they reboot it, usually around January every year, and uh, start with a whole new storyline. And so it is just a mass of content that's been running since the fucking 70s. Like, to even know where to begin would be impossible. And I wouldn't even recommend the original, because it's 160 episodes, and it's not serialized at all. <laughs> so that's scary. But it's, um, <laughs> it, this is this is has stuff that's kind of familiar. Like, yeah, you can kind yeah. of latch on. I mean, it's like, you definitely get the sense that you're, like, you know, I was aware that there are, like, loads of other common Rider series and stuff. And there's this... I understood watching it that, like, the writers are... It's kind of like a, a free-floating signifier that every series mm-hmm. develops its own like context and meaning for and so exactly. there's actually like and then this is an interesting one as well because i was reading that it's like written as a response to like 9-11 yes i wanted to bring that up yeah. it's really fascinating because this 
to be very clear, I want to make this explicit ahead of time. This is a superhero TV show meant for children. This is something that if yeah. it was probably just made in America, I would never end up talking about. But um, you would not imagine from a Western point of view that this is meant for sixth grade boys because the plot is absurdly contrived. Every episode is about 19 minutes of talking that are quite slow and dramatic. Um, the cast of this show uh, is full of lawyers, journalists, scientific researchers, um, people that you would not <laughs> imagine a sixth grade little boy reacting to. Uh, it's also extremely violent, and the morals are complex, and it is very dramatically compelling. So, although I, I want to clarify that the target audience for this is sixth grade Japanese little boys, uh, it yeah <laughs> kind of it it doesn't feel that way while sometimes also feeling exactly that way and it's a very harsh uh contrast between those two extremes yeah i mean especially as it goes on it really develops this like heavy atmosphere of dread where everything is like proceeding towards this like final confrontation um and uh, like oh, the heroism of it almost begins to feel like incidental um mm -hmm. or like not incidental because obviously like uh shinji kun is a uh very like <laughs> heroic and sincere character but um it's like it's the overwhelming message of the show is that like being a writer isn't fun it's not cool <laughs> it's gonna like des destroy <laughs> yeah. everything and you know uh and yeah, I thought it was like, you know, as a kind of like moral drama, it was like so uh, actually compelling and stuff, right? Because it's, it's like a meditation on justice. And uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, it acquires this kind of like Shakespearean gravitas at a certain point. <laughs> like, I know, because I think because the series is made for children and, and it's kind of meant to like impart a moral lesson, it does away with the uselessly complicated and ornate plots that we're used to in, you know, our respective countries' mm. television because, you know, all of these extreme you know ambiguities and plot details and complexities that people become attached to as they become more media literate as they get older when you throw those away you can actually make this strange universal scope that does yes. feel like a shakespearean tragedy and it is very like touching and kind of shocking and to see things really put into not necessarily black and white but broad and yeah, yeah. you know all encompassing it feels like you're watching a great human epic yeah absolutely it no it really does like uh all the characters have these like overtones of like tragedy they all have their own motivation um and they're all detailed every single character except for like maybe two comedic side characters is like fully realized it's really really wild yeah i mean i also love the i love the kind of like tekken style like the kind of king of iron fist tournament like structure of the whole thing where yeah. it's like the premise is that it's basically that like if you're a writer you have to fight all the there can only be one writer so i think and i think this is like the first 
This is the first common writer series yeah. to have evil common writers. To have, yeah, and to have them kind of like yeah, even even the the ones who are like good or sympathetic um, are, regardless of their personal feelings about it, are of necessity like opposed to one another. And so mm-hmm. there's this like tension set up from the beginning between Shinji and Re- and Ren, who is the kind of like smoldering Batman. Uh, <laughs> Like yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Like, kind of sensitive guy who I love, um, where like they kind of develop this like friendship, but at the same time there's this like you know final conflict hanging over them where at some point mm-hmm. there's going to be this like apocalyptic showdown, you know, um, and then they bring in uh, the lawyer, um, the lawyer, his assistant. They amazing bring in character. The- Everyone is amazing. Yeah, to briefly summarize the premise and synopsis of the show, it follows... Shinji is the lead character, is uh, basically what you can say for at least most of the series. Yeah. But it's, uh, it takes place in Tokyo in 2002, post-9-11, and the world is full of ambiguous senses of justice, and it also has a mirror world. So, inside mirrors, there are monsters um, that will come out of the mirror and violently suck in old Japanese ladies and unsuspecting bystanders and then brutally murder them, or, like, let them dissolve uh, into thin air uh, painfully in this... (laughs) abandoned reverse world it's very horrific to be honest um and those who can enter the mirror world and make a contract with a monster can become common writers uh but like you said the one problem is that there can only be one common writer and the one who is last standing can harness the power of the mirror world and make a wish come true so this is one of my favorite narrative structures it's a battle royale um it's a death game And when it applies to these characters who are supposed to be kind of morally broad, generic heroes, it does make for very complicated characterization. And I'm glad you brought up Ren, who is my favorite character in the show, I think. I'm obsessed with him. He's so hot. What did you make of him? (laughs) Uh, I know. I loved loved him. um, He is, he's like the perfect complement to Shinji's character and I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. their kind of like the development of their relationship throughout the whole thing and he's this when you we first meet him he's like this kind of frightening ambiguous figure he kind of he's like already knows there's this girl Yui who he's kind of like in with uh and it's like they almost seem like they're this like you know Initially, you get the impression they might be like this monster fighting team or something. Right. And that isn't actually the case. Um, and Shinji kind of gets involved with them. But, like, uh, then there comes this point where, you know, uh, Ren as is like this... Uh, I can't remember the name of his, like, rider suit, but it's like a kind of knight-based... It's like black knight-based Yeah, I, th- I think it's literally common rider knight, if I'm not Yeah, mistaken. right, right. Um... <laughs> He helps Shinji, like, defeat a monster in Shinji's, like, very first battle. Uh, but then he, like, unexpectedly turns on Shinji. Um, and, That's right. And uh, you don't know what the fuck is going on. Uh, Shinji doesn't know what the fuck is going on. And you learn that, that there's this kind of, like, as you said, like a battle royale thing going on. Um, 
but there's this then there's this kind of uneasy piece between them where it's like oh well we'll, we'll like work together for the time being they kind of become this like trio of friends um but he's like such a kind of uh like you know smoldering quiet like looking sadly off into the distance mm -hmm. um he has like a tragic motivation and backstory that he won't he'll never like open up about to anybody until much much later on um and he he's just like such a kind of like he's really like a kind of japanese like byronic hero you know he's like yeah. so like kind of tragic and uh yeah i know i love it. i love the just like the high drama of it all you know yeah, because I think a lot of the drama and even some of like the physicalized staging of the way like the fights happen, it feels very much like Kabuki theater where yeah. they have the huge archetypes, you know, very obvious, like broad, generalized sketches of characters. Like this is the sad one. Um, this is like the Genki Peppy, like kind of dumb one who, you know, rolls around. Like this is like the evil one. And it's so interesting because then they not only do we have these, like, shadow archetypes, but then they become even more exaggerated when they transform into the common Rider suits and are, like, fighting with each other, and the gestures are so theatrical and overstated and, like, satisfying and physical. It does kind of feel like theater. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you can tell from the, like, physicality. Like, when, um, is it Asakura, the purple, the evil one? Asakura, yeah, the evil one. Like, I love him too. You can tell from his, like, physicality, like, the way he moves in the suit with this kind of, like, he almost just doesn't care about it. He just, like, loves fighting, you know? But he, there's no, there's nothing, like, heroic in his posture. It's, like, just this kind of, like, carelessness, right? Like, mm -hmm. he just doesn't give a fuck about anything around him. Um, whereas Shin Shinji is, like, rolling around and bumping into things. Um, doing a thumbs up, doing okay the thumbs sign. up, yeah. <laughs> um, really strange visuals when that happens. That would always like, and all of whenever they're in the common writer suits, it's in the mirror world. So everything is also uncannily reversed, and so all the text reads backward, and there's not any other soul to be seen. Whenever the suits are hit with a sword or punched, um, they have like this. I don't know how they do this, but one of the special effects is like sparks. Oh, the shower burst sparks. out of them. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's very real. Like it's not CGI, and it is kind of like scary and shocking to see when their like suits explode every scene. Yeah, I love I love it so much. I think it's amazing. Like this, the sheer they also love fire. The sheer spectacle of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's always like layers of fire and like warbling like heat that distorts everything. Um, I wanted to mention briefly before we talk any more about the plot about the costumes because this is one of the most important aspects of the show. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they're like, uh, it. It. I'm so like fascinated. I didn't get the, the get around to reading Paglia on uh, on like suits of armor and stuff, but I was kind of interested <laughs> to see if there would be, there would be like any resonance there. But like, I mean, one of the things that like makes like uh, was it like pronounced to cats. How do you say it? Like tonkatsu? I don't want to like. Uh, get... Tonkatsu. Uh, yeah. Oh my god! I almost said tonkatsu is a form of meat. Sorry, it's tokusatsu. Tokusatsu, right? Like, I... I have to be really good about introducing people to Japanese words because I remember I did an episode about pinkuega and no one was able, like, ever able to remember <laughs> the word. The word is tokusatsu. 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 Um, tokusatsu. Okay. Very nice. Um, 
one of the things that makes it like an interesting area of exploration like potentially for me uh-huh. is like just this tradition of of like costumery and armor right because i just think it's like i mean going even going to, back to like power rangers or whatever like i can just i just think it's like these, these fantastic like art objects you know like they're so vivid and colorful and like often like really beautiful um mm. and I just feel like they have this like stunning imagistic pop art quality to them in a way that kind of like in the West, our equivalent would be like superheroes. Right. And I think that right. all of the the glamour of the superhero costume has been like so oversaturated and lost that it doesn't have that kind of glittering quality that would have made it like, um, you know, a, a sort of subject of like, you know, like pop art, like in Roy Lichtenstein's, mm-hmm. you know, art that he was doing back then or whatever it just doesn't have that quality anymore it's too over familiar um yeah and also i think even actively they are trying to reduce the the sheen and the sparkle and like that vivid glistening color that you so well described like when you look at the when you look at like asakura's suit which is the purple one that he wears it is so purple and sh- like shiny and it feels like glossy and if you like yeah, rub it yeah. back and forth you can imagine it would feel good but there's not any color that's been so vibrant in a superhero movie since like um Batman and Robin probably and then no. everything after that is like is gray yeah 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 uh, or, or kind and of like, like the muted. most recent Batman movie, it's like all like you know that muted colors and like the worn <laughs> out like real suit. But um, Tokusatsu resists that impulse and everything still has the lycra like fascination. There is also a sexual element to these costumes that I feel is worth addressing because they put the musculature and the details and emphasize them in a way that they don't in Western superhero media. Yeah, that's true. It feels kind of porny and strange to observe, (laughs) Um, especially Kamen Ryuki, that is the name of um, Shinji's character, his Kamen Rider form. His is really, like, sexualized for some reason. (laughs) It's, uh, he's like, he's the, the red one. The right? red one. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> yes. he, his, I will say like his costume to me, um, some of the costumes that have this kind of like slightly plasticky quality to them in this mm-hmm. one as well. Right. Which I also, I also kind of like, like, I like that, that kind of like, like almost like they kind of look like human action figures or something in a in like a real way. I mean, I don't know, like <laughs> the association of them and action figures is like, very very strong for me because you know i don't know i ha- I seem to have like a lot of like weird um action figures of like japanese series like this as well because i had like vr trooper toys okay as well even though I'd, i hadn't even heard of that or knew what it was like <laughs> because you know but you're like dad would just bring you a toy and you'd be like oh this is you know but i didn't know like what i didn't like pick up as much as i can understand though like but do you want to like say more about that like what's okay i guess it's just my wandering homosexual eye probably but (laughs) the the other thing is that japanese gay men also really latch on to tokusatsu stuff for fetish porn right and it comes up all the time oh interesting because a lot of the times they're getting like trampled on or like humiliated or like beat up and like when they have all of their physical characteristics so 
prominently emphasized. So they'll have, there'd be like 190 centimeters tall with like this huge plastic impossible chest. Um, and then they're getting like humiliated by another one of those yeah, and right. trampled on. Yeah. And so people really like uh, depicting like people getting like cock and ball tortured in the <laughs> in the common writer's suits. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like uh, I mean they do they are absolutely I mean this is like the Paglian point, right? That they are like stylizations of the human physique. Uh, right. in ways And that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um and there is also this kind of like I could kind of see that because one of the sort of um I don't know like I feel like uh, really characteristic qualities of these fights is like these guys just being kind of knocked around. And I think it's something to do with like the weight of the suits. There's a particular mm-hmm. like physicality to it that I actually remember very well from like Power Rangers and Beetleborgs and these kinds of shows I watched when I was a kid. Certainly. Of like the, the kind of like staggering about thing after like taking a blow or uh you know they're kind of like jiggling about or like bobbling about you know like there's this kind of like um i I don't know i could see that being a a sort of like frizz on to that right because it's it's just so like um it's very weighty there's a kind of like almost like a, a a slight like sense of abjection or something to it sometimes totally right like yeah it's kind of creepy yeah like the um, i think like the for instance super sentai which is was adapted into power rangers as i said earlier those ones are kind of friendly looking yes like yeah i'm not i'm not scared of those but ultraman and common rider are scary yeah like yeah because they're kind of like bug like and they have those weird deformed eyes and strange metal spikes it feels like not something you'd want to be so it is absolutely abject so it's like getting into these deformed and exaggerated human depictions that are staging shakespearean levels of discourse on justice as they're like beating the shit out of each other, exploding into sparks in a reversed mirror world soap opera. I mean, this is just yeah. fascinating. It's, it's, it really feels like it has a secret, like prescient comment about humanity that they've like burrowed into yeah, it. Yeah, no, I mean, like, there's also this kind of thing where like they can only fight for li- like limited periods of time in the mirror world. That's right, and they're really being like puppeted by this one this one guy who's kind of instituted this like this death match between them all mm-hmm. um so they can only fight in the mirror world and if they spend too long in there and this is like depicted very inconsistently throughout the show their armor begins <laughs> to like fade away and it's like yeah. not clear like at that point it's like if do they need to leave or they'll get trapped or there's they have a time limit anyway and yeah. so it's like th- it kind of undercuts the sort of power fantasy of assuming the this like these like superheroic costumes and abilities right because they can mm-hmm. only use them for a short period they're like very very constrained in terms of what they can do yeah they feel kind of useless um and weak and it's really interesting because the protagonist of the show shinji does not become competent until very late yeah like maybe around like yeah. episode 15 or 20 is when he finally starts like making decisions for himself and not just like stumbling about and like yelling in his grumbly japanese voice <laughs> and there really is this like disruption of like the typical power fantasy and even a character who has like the most pure-hearted 
wholesome reasons for fighting, which is Shinji, who says he wants to become a common writer so that he can protect other people. That's like, you know, of course, as he's simple not, as it gets. He's not good at it, though. No, he's not good at it. His suit barely works. Uh, he, like, stumbles around. He loses a lot. And on top of that, his mission is actually not as simple as you'd think because of all of these uh, really wild, uh, interfering circumstances from the battle royale that's happening in the background of the show and the, the really fun thing is that like then the, he he's basically like regarded as prey because every other rider in this like war is just constantly making like tactical and strategic calculations about every other rider and mm-hmm. their at- everybody's like attitude almost universally towards shinji with like one or two exceptions is like this guy just doesn't know what the fuck is going on he's out of his depth we're gonna like crush him easily <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like so he is kind of um his like n- naivete and the like simplicity of his like ideals of justice or whatever um like actually make him very very vulnerable uh absolutely and but i mean the, ev- like every single one of them in a way is like in in this kind of bondage you know, and they have like varying levels of realization around it. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that makes like Ren's character interesting is that he's the one who kind of, for him, it's like the tragic potential of it is like fully realized in his character because he just like his reasons for being in the fight are understandable, like the motivation for his wish. Um, but he is, he also is like struggling with the burden of like, being ruthless but he's also mm-hmm. committed to it and he will kind of pursue it to the end and there's this constant thing between him and shinji of like which is very like poignant of shinji trying to appeal to his like better half or trying to like appeal to him to stop fighting or whatever and then mm-hmm. you know ren will just like look into the distance and drive away on his motorcycle um, and you just exactly you just know he makes that brooding face yeah. that he makes every time, like looking down, and his like eyes twitch a bit, and then he just gets on his uh, motorcycle and drives away. He's so he's so doomed, you know. Like that's yes, so doomed. They're also doomed, and it really but... is fascinating because he goes back and forth between the way he pursues his mission. Um, multiple times, every ten episodes, he completely changes like what he's going to do, like. Um, at first, he's quite ruthless, and then he decides he's going to try to, like, uh, find a way out, and then he goes back into being even worse, and uh, watching him, like, move back and forth makes him, like, kind of um, a time bomb throughout the series, but there's a lot of other interesting writers that I wanted to mention. Henshin!
I don't care. This is going in. I'm saying this. Yeah. The glass noise of the mirror world is the most horrifying thing in the world, and they play it for 20 minutes every episode. It's uh, it's like a genuinely unpleasant sound. It hurts your ears. Yeah. It, it's actually um, painful on your eardrums, and yeah. it loops for minutes at a time. Yeah. And it's also like this horrible nightmarish alarm that just will sound at any given point in a character's like day-to-day life it's which like means they have to go vibrating in your pocket <laughs> it's, it's like it's really i mean this is like underscores how powerless they are you know and how like um disempowered they are by by being common riders like because they just get summoned into these horrible fights with monsters all, all the time when they're trying to like go for lunch or like have a date with somebody yeah i love how abrasive the noise is because it is um, i imagine as disruptive as it is to those characters when they like clutch their temples they're like Ugh! because it yeah. actually and especially when you watch so much of it at once which we both did it just starts sounding in your head when you're walking around the real world oh yeah totally it's like as you're going to sleep you can just like hear you can it hear things. it <laughs> yeah it's also like the um the dragon noise of like the dragon monster that uh-huh. um that Shinji forms a contract with it has this kind of like like yeah. <laughs> sounds like a kind of like distorted cow or something that's also a quite unpleasant noise that you hear all the time in this series just so much unpleasant noises um yeah. okay I'm gonna throw that like somewhere in the middle of the favorites is Tezuka who is only around for a brief amount of time. He's like the pink one. Yeah, the and ray. The ray based one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. And what, what he's interesting for is that he also kind of shares Shinji's uh, beliefs in absolutely an absolute pacifism, no fighting. He becomes a common writer to stop more common writers from coming into existence. And he um, is ruthlessly murdered. Um, just completely brutally in quite early in the show and we've seen we see a few of the other writers get killed and it has like a lot of weight but this one was actually horrifying and the way they film his death scene is like a david lynch movie it's like yeah that weird inland empire shaky handheld digital camera looking at like the japanese apartment building ceiling as it's like overexposed in bright blue it's really uncomfortable to watch actually there's so much of that like almost like unintentionally twin peaks the return i kept thinking that like, like it's exactly like the return to it. yeah like the cgi that's all like under leveled um even for like a 2002 television program japanese cgi was has always been really far behind america's and so it looks gummy plastic playstation one yeah uh, yeah it does and then there's also just like there are loads of like weird overexposed shots there's like like it's fucking baffling it's like bright white cheap like camera (laughs) textures and stuff but it's actually like there is a kind of um like like a a a language at work to it right like where Mm -hmm. like uh it's often these like different styles of filming or whatever are used to like emphasize the emotional content of what's taking place like yeah uh, and there are some like really weird jarring 
choices in terms of like the filmography but it was like so fast i was obsessed with it like i loved all of that stuff you know um like even they also use it in some, some of the like um comic relief scenes uh where there's one bit where like um you know some of the people in the at the or journal this uh the, the newspaper oh yeah ore journaru yeah um <laughs> the two of the l- ladies there's just like this really bizarre sequence where they're like sped up and they like they're going into the bathroom and like squabbling over makeup or something but it's all taking place in this like hyper hyper real like sped up <laughs> like film um yeah um, some of the stuff when they're doing comic relief is really bizarre. I noticed maybe four or five times a little pink window would appear in the bottom third of the screen and then slowly cross the bottom of the screen with a little gag in it and then yeah. leave. Did you ever catch that? I think I caught that. I caught, like, moments where, like, jokes are being explained on the screen. Oh, yeah, when they do. Yeah. Oh, another glittering feature of this is that because Kamen Rider Ryuki was until very recently by Shout Factory not officially released in the US, all of the subtitles for it were done by fans um, and usually not for Americans or Westerners uh, but for Filipinos because they love this shit. Interesting. So you get like Filipino or sometimes Malaysian fan subbers that put it into English and um, sometimes the translations are really bad or they're like really awkward or grammatically poor and they also are overly stylized and sometimes like characters have different colors for their for when they're speaking or like they put it in a different font and it's so silly. Oh yeah, I love the um uh I I can't remember the name of the writer like the golden the ultimate like golden writer. Oh has, yeah, has um, his like own Odin. font. Odin, yeah, he has. Yeah, he has his own font. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, sorry, we were talking about um, the oh yeah the pink the pink rider. Uh, yeah, I didn't his mean to death. get away. Yeah, because it is it is like really brutal and unceremonious, and the, I mean the way like death is handled in the series is really gr- the great is like the way it's used to like underscore the seriousness of the the mm-hmm. battle they're all involved in, and he's also like. Um, this tragic and honorable character in the sense that like he has a motivation to uh fight i think it's asa oh i can't remember asakura right because asakura like maybe was it like he killed his sister or something that's right yeah so like uh and um the 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 puppet master the guy who's pulling the strings Mm-hmm. he like wants everybody to fight so he'll like she's like this phantom who shows up in mirrors and and, and basically badges people about fighting um and he hands uh the pink rider this like power-up card you know and to like try to get him to goad him to uh fight and like avenge his sister you know and he like refuses and he says i'm not going to be like baited into fighting you know mm-hmm. and it's uh, he only enters the fight eventually to i think to protect shinji that's uh, right because shinji is yeah. about to die like he's about to get destroyed um exactly and it's um the death in this show i guess probably most people are like really like fascinated and like scandalized by like game of thrones was a really major touch point for people yeah. about like butchering characters and having uh you know consequences but it's really wild to watch this japanese children's show where when a character dies it's over and it happens often 
the entire mm-hmm. cast by the end is butchered, basically, with almost no exceptions, I think. So when it happens, I also found it really touching that they gave characters, like, one or two episodes to grieve after. Yeah, and yeah. they're, like, very disturbed. They do some fascinating experimental um, narration and camera effects when it's, like, characters, like, wandering around the 2002 Tokyo streets, like, with their hands pressed to their temples and they're screaming and crying. They're doing, like, like, full-on, like, uh, Jodorowsky holy mountain like screaming yeah like, for real. like it's yeah i love it um yeah no i mean there's also i mean i i even like how uh like scissor like the scissors writer um common writer scissors he's like this like really <laughs> crappy like evil guy who shows up at the beginning and just gets murked pretty much immediately and it's he gets, like, like swallowed. Yeah, he gets like eaten by his uh, contract animal, right? Like it's uh, yeah. it's really gruesome. And but it's also I love just like that he's like this guy who's just kind of uh, like completely amoral and ruthless and cynical. But then there's also that drama of that he he just becomes like even the characters who think they know what the deal is and are have a kind of like hard edged realism about it. There's no guarantee that they'll do well, and he just gets taken out really really early to just kind of illustrate the stakes you know mm. um and yeah i don't know I, I i loved it i loved like the way that new writers were introduced um yeah I- because there's thir- there's 13 of them not all of them appear in this um there's a movie that uh, we're not going to discuss today because i don't think it's very good to be honest but um yeah that kind of rewrites the last five episodes but um that one introduces the last of them but they kind of give you enough time with each introduced writer, one probably comes in, like, every five episodes or so. Yeah. And so, like, you get enough time where it, like, really feels like a naturalistic um, expansion of the themes, whereas the original idea was that they were going to have a different writer every week. Yeah. Well, they're originally going to be, like, 50. Yes. Something crazy. Like, yeah. Yeah, which would be unbelievable. One, one I'm glad they didn't go that way. Yeah. Yeah, because Shinji loses every episode, so like until the very end, so he would not survive that version of this show. No, like him getting a lucky escape that many times would. Uh... But I mean, I, I really like the thing where they'll be having a fight and somebody is about to make the final blow, and then some so another one will just come from off screen. You know, yeah, and that happens over and over again, and I like never got tired of it. I was always like thrilled. When they would like <gasps> oh. just from off screen, something new would like, like oh he's here as well, you know, and it's like yeah, and then the ending theme starts playing on top of it, yeah, <laughs> because every every single battle is like uh, just involves every rider who's participating making these like strategic calculations. So like in mm-hmm. every single battle, when there's like a lot of them on screen, like you don't know who is going to attack who. And who mm. might suddenly, you know, be helping one person and then decide that they're going to, like... They're always, like, weighing their strategic strategic advantage up. And sometimes characters will be having their own fight that's, like, to do with their own, you know, motivations against each other. And mm-hmm. something decisive will be about to happen. But then, like, you know, the lawyer will show up in his green rider <laughs> suit and, you know, and just be, like, like shooting... Oh, man, I love his gun as well. That's so oh, sick. The gun is everything. Yeah. That that really appeals to my inner sixth grade boy. Same. I want that fucking gun. Same. Like, I was like, I want to shoot that. Yeah. I mean, the bits where he's like firing at them and like the the like squibs exploding on the costumes is mm-hmm. like it's, there's such a weight and physicality to it. And there's one bit where he's like firing at Ren 
and uh, as Ren is running away, and he's like, the gun is like blasting apart bits of scenery. It's like Tarantino esque. It's so like I know it's fantastic action sequences. Um, Speaking of writers, I wanted to go into more detail about the lawyer is really interesting. I cannot get over the fact that this children's show um, has a lawyer as one of its main um, figures, and his name is Keith Olka, and his motivation for fighting to be a writer is because he has a mortal sickness, and he wants to gain eternal life. And his uh, character arc is just riveting. It's, uh, he's amazing. He was like he quickly became one of my favorite characters. Like I was always like delighted whenever he was on screen. I was like, this is gonna be great. <laughs> and he's my favorite scene of him is when they're in the pool um, and they're like stretched out, having like those glamorous like mojitos, and they're like undressed by the pool, like debating the ethics of fighting for yourself. Uh, as like a Nietzschean figure or fighting for others and for goodness and I can't get over the fact of them in that indoor poor like pool like drinking mojitos I love it so uh, I I was I was really delighted by the kind of like budget 2001 Japanese TV studio like rendering of luxury yeah (laughs) he's just like in a public pool (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or his, like, weird mansion that we only see one room of every time. Yeah, it's like a, a uh, corridor or something. Yeah, yeah, it's the corridor, and then there's the one room that has the table and nothing else in the room at all. It was clearly some mansion that they built on the outskirts of Tokyo and had not found a tenant for yet, so they just shot everything there. There's two pieces of furniture, and it's just um, his assistant and the lawyer, like, sitting there prattling onto each other. It's kind of like a video game space where you just go there and they're just there, like, having conversations (laughs) and stuff. But, like, I I also like the, um, you know, to, like, show his kind of refined sensibilities, he's always, like, eating with cutlery. Like, uh... Oh, of course, because he's, you know, westernized and advanced. (laughs) Um, and I, yeah, I I really like his, uh, mysterious relationship with his, like, incredibly loyal manservant. Yeah, they Uh, seem, they seem like they're an early 2000s gay couple because the early 2000s Japanese haircuts aren't doing any of these straight men any favors, and so they all look, (laughs) like, stylized, like, like, baishonen, like be shown in manga characters basically and so like they look like lovers like the whole show and it's very cute it's so sweet like they they have a lovely relationship um i at one point i messaged you just saying goyo's a recipe because oh i know because i (laughs) want i had like five people in my house last night i was like hey friends i have to binge watch probably about five hours of common writer ryuki (laughs) if anyone wants to come and like drink tequila with me and do this that's what i'm doing and we were all like blown away by the gyoza scene it's so great yeah uh it's i yeah i I love the goro uh and he he because that's there's like an interesting thing as well with like the soap opera quality of this where it's the lightheartedness that will pop up from time to yeah, time. Like yeah. they'll have an episode of like Shinji has to take over for Goro the manservant and like wears like a cute little apron and cooks really good gyoza and has to clean the toilet and wear a cute little mask and like cute wash the windows and it's really inexplicable. 
And that is something that would offend um, the Western taste palette because they need one tone and nothing else. And it has to be miserable, gritty darkness or like retarded, gooby-gobby humor. I mean, it's another way in which it's like, I'm kind of unintentionally, but it's it's sort of reminiscent of Twin Peaks, I think. Mm -hmm. You know? I was thinking that too. Uh, Where you just have these... I love that they they all work in that cafe together. Like, they're like, okay, we have three different common writers who are all, like, desperate, like, are gonna have to kill each other eventually. And they all work in the cafe together. Yeah. The Himalayan black tea. <laughs> and they, who, like, oh, like, Shinji's late from his day job as a journalist, so it's his job to clean out the dishes and run the bath. <laughs> yeah, I like all the bits where, um, you know, like, he shows up and he's, like, been injured in a fight or something and then Ren's like, clean this up. <laughs> uh and yeah too good to be true shinji is kind of it seems like he's kind of bad at everything like oh yeah he's he's just like spazzing out and like knocking plates around whenever he's in the cafe and then he's like showing up to his like journalist job and like does he uh incompetent at that he crashes his motorcycle about a hundred times um, he's running late all the time. He has to live in the office for 10 episodes because he got his, like, I don't remember why he got kicked out of his apartment, but no. for one reason or another, he did. Lots of, <laughs> I will say, like, lots of, I think partly because I was kind of marathoning it as well. Uh-huh. There were lots of, like, details that got completely lost. And a lot of the times I would be watching and then I'd be like, wait, how did the last scene end? And, like, the, the transitions were just getting completely like lost. <laughs> like I was like, I can't remember how this scene ended, and I, I think part of it is that like, especially the fight scenes tend to end very abruptly. Like they don't mm-hmm. seem to have a sort of um, uh, I mean sometimes they do, but like sometimes it's like a very serious fight, and then the next scene you just see them kind of walking away from it, or it'll just cut, yeah. and they're like somewhere else now, and you're like, oh okay, um. There's a lot of, like, I don't, I think partly it was just the, the sort of foreignness of the media, but there was a lot of, like, catching up <laughs> throughout the whole thing and, like, trying to adjust uh-huh. to what was going on precisely. Um, but then I think that kind of, like, that uh, combined with the sort of weird textural quality of the the film choices and stuff like that, um, or the, just the kind of aesthetic palette of it, um made the whole experience like very psychedelic as well you know yeah yeah it really has that like accidental psychedelic power that i'm so obsessed with because i feel like if you do have the courage to step completely out of your familiar media world what you get is a very like thematically potent and almost like mind expanding experience that like reconfigures the way you think about things and will change the way you experience other art going forward because when you've seen an almost totally alien style of filmmaking and storytelling, it really does kind of like stretch your brain out in a satisfying way. So although you have to kind of like sit through like the weird filler episodes when they're like having to argue about organized marriages and they're like going on dates and um going to the fair. It's like Yeah, it's really um you know, sometimes it's, like, super incomprehensible, but then what you're rewarded with is, like, this impressive, grand-scale, thematic opera that 
will change the way your brain fires so that you can watch entirely new things. Like, yeah. this is why I wish people... I think people should listen to Bjork in, like, high school. Like, everyone should have to go through her whole discography and get used to listening to things that are unpleasant because then <laughs> you can listen to anything yeah, and then you yeah. can get into, like, harsh noise wall. And that's why I think people should have to watch Common Rider Ryuki in high school so that they can watch all forms of uncanny broken asian media and just get it and not have to overthink it well there's this like i think when you what makes it click is realizing and i think this is like whether you can see not that i know a lot about the subject but you can see the the connection to like you know japanese like ritual theater and things like that right mm-hmm. is you have to understand that everything is taking place on a heavily like stylized level and so like in these fight scenes like the where the characters are like placed in relation to one another isn't you know before they're actually fighting isn't really important like or someone will get like kicked into the corner of a room and then they'll just be in somewhere other some other like location in the room oh yeah like they'll be like fighting a monster and then they'll like punch it off screen and then they are in a completely different setting like they will be indoors and then suddenly they will be outdoors in like fucking nagano prefecture you have to just accept that you're watching a like a kind of almost like symbolist depiction of a fight of a conflict right? right and it's like it's not about where they're located in space because and it's also just like in, in any given fight like a a character's appearance on the screen is there is their could, entrance it could just happen. to the fight <laughs> like yeah exactly like, you don't there's not like a door that they come through or something it's like their appearance on screen means they're present <laughs> you know yeah like uh so when you get to grips with that when you get to grips with that kind of like narrative language on display it just becomes completely like compelling because you can kind of relax and it's like it's the same thing with the kind of slightly crappy like explosion effects uh like right. the cgi explosions when they do their like final events um <laughs> which is it's like uh, you I completely forgot to mention the cards. Like, oh, yeah. the cards are... Ab- because of, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon at the time, the worst feature of this whole show is that when they want to do their special cunty move to, like, end the fight or, like, get a really good hit in, they take a card out of a card deck on their... on their... their waistband. Yeah. And then they put it either, like, into their sword or into a staff or into an armband or something... And the action stops for a whole 30 seconds as they take out the card, hold it up, strike a pose, put it in, the thing closes on the card, and then the silly subtitles at the bottom put stylized text yeah. that says, Suodovento. Suodovento. Advento. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not, it, it's like one of the most like undeveloped parts of the show, it seems like. It's just yeah. to sell cards. Yeah. It's literally just to sell cards to children, but... Um, yeah. I do, I do, sometimes <laughs> I, I enjoyed like, the mechanisms of, like, the weapons unfolding and opening out and stuff. Like, yeah. there's something kind of satisfying about it in a sort of, like, kid Transformers way. <laughs> um, but, I mean, and also another thing I noticed is as the show goes on, they, they sort of play with it a little bit, whereas initially it's like, they have to stop and the battle pauses and they go through their like ritual movements. Mm-hmm. Um, but then towards the end, you're getting bits where like one of them is rushing another one and he has to like put his card into his like weapon in time yeah. to like defend himself from the attack. Um, or like Shinji will try to use someone else's card and then it'll send like the sword or whatever to the wrong person or yeah, like, yeah. it does. Occasionally it creates like strange things, but this is all just to say that like, 
it is so empowering and exciting to dunk yourself in an unfamiliar and off-putting media and, like, not to whine about it, but to just, like, swallow it whole yeah. and then come out, like, redeveloped and capable of even more artistic experience. It's it, it's really, uh, yeah, it's a great experience. I love doing this kind of thing, you know? I love, like, getting to grips with, like, an unfamiliar form and, like, the, you have to teach yourself to be able to appreciate it in a way, like... yeah. And to be honest, if you don't watch stuff like Common Rider, Evangelion isn't as good. Like, you actually can't mm. fully swallow... Okay, I don't want to say that. Everyone should just watch Evangelion and get it and watch it a few times and, like, ambiently have it on in the background of their life. You should watch it, like, a million times so that you can, like, learn from it each time and find out more plot details mm-hmm. naturalistically. Uh, but I will say... I get special otaku points for knowing about, like, the <laughs> fact that when Asuka does her kicks, it's a direct common Rider reference that Ano just stole directly from it. Mm. And it borrows a lot of the themes. The fighting is very similar between Evangelion units and common Riders. And if you do your research and start picking through these tokusatsu shows from the past, you're going to start, like, seeing them show up in other forms of Japanese media. It's like reading the Bible. Yeah, it's like, no, it's like that, the kind of intertextuality. I mean, I also like the kind of, like, there's this kind of, um in the way that, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has that, like, fascination mm-hmm. with, like, 1960s Hollywood. That is so weird you brought you know? that up. I was thinking about that the whole time we've been talking for some reason. Yeah, because it's, like, the same thing where it, or it, it, I also feel like, uh, you know, Alan Moore's, like, appreciation for, like, British superhero comics. Like, it's like... Mm-hmm this affection for a, a, a kind of and for the in those examples it's just the fact that that media is now old so it's acquired mm. this kind of otherness where this is just this is different it's just like foreign <laughs> you know but <laughs> it's like i think in a way whereas like the the you know the cultural stuff that we're all familiar with in the west has actually become so kind of like totalizing and inescapable and exhausting mm-hmm. it's like you can actually yes. rediscover the kind of almost like the the meaning and the thrill of like these exciting characters in colorful costumes, uh, like doing extraordinary things. And it yeah, it's like the the yeah. naive joy of the simplicity of the viewing experience yeah. that is so lost. Like, um, whenever I go to see what would be to Japan a foreign film, like an English language movie, you know, I, I'm not dreading it. I'm you know excited to go see a film or something. But yeah. it's like I. It's what I grew up with. It's what I know. It's all familiar. The beats are the same every time. And so I don't ever, like, sit down uh, expecting to have, like, my mind expanded in any way. But then if you do stuff like this, you know, it is really... It does kind of give you that childish joy of, like, experiencing great art for the first time and, like, coming to grips with, like, the filmic medium as a part of your life. And it, it renews your love for it, which is... Why I can say with confidence, despite the fact that this is a children's show, it's like a worthwhile experience for adults and not like a like a dumb nostalgia, like, ooh, like I don't think people should be watching Power Rangers. That doesn't really have a lot of no, I mean, worth it, but this does. <laughs> I do think as well, though, that there's like a sort of serious, eth- like, you know, meditation on like ethics and justice here as well. That is actually very yes. like sophisticated where... You, each writer represents a different like approach to the ethical dilemma that they're in and some of them mm-hmm. are just like sadists and they just want to fight for the you know thrill of it like and then yeah. the lawyer is kind of uh like a moral 
but kind of charming and kind of not really like a bad guy you know like everybody has their own motivations which are dramatized against one another but like for shinji you know it's all about really his kind of arc and one of the themes of the show is about understanding that like justice isn't a simple thing and that like you're it's really about how like um it's about like innocence and experience right like where he Mm -hmm. begins with these like ideals that are really pure and sincerely meant and it's all about him going through this kind of torturous almost like this crucifying process of like Mm -hmm. understanding why like the it about like um i don't know like the uh, the necessity of the the situation he's in makes like demands on him that like transcend what he would ideally like to do or like the kind of justice that he would like to bring about and right so it's like uh you know and this is like ren's tension with him is like ren is trying to get him to see this you know so they they're all going kind of going through this like moral education as they like fight you know and uh there's this kind of idea of like trying to kind of reconcile some of that like pure sense of justice um or preserve it through its kind of like encounter with necessity mm-hmm. you know like there's i feel like there's this whole like almost like hegelian dialectical commentary going on about like the nature i mean really like the nature of like common writer shows in general and what they're really about um and in the process, you're onto something really. Like, sorry to interrupt. No, no. I, I didn't want to. Please, I didn't want to forget this because you are exactly right about the Christ-like um, and like the crucifixion imagery, and that is a feature and not a bug because yeah. um, all of this tokusatsu stuff comes from Ultraman, which was developed by a Catholic Japanese man who installed a lot of literal like. What is this called? Rose? What, what, uh, what's it called? I don't know. Cruciform? I don't know. Yeah, cruciform. It's, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it has like all of the images of um, Ultraman, like literally being crucified, and the image would be unfamiliar to Japanese people pretty often. Like they'll mm. they'll know, but it won't translate that way. But for Western audiences watching it, they'll like know that these characters are being um, put through moral challenge so that they can become this kind of um, deified figure of truth and power. And so that imagery and that metaphor has kind of slipped into most tokusatsu media. Everything from Evangelion uh, gets that kind of, you know, Christ imagery and um, theming from that. And even Kamen Rider Ryuki, I think, is very, like, it is very, like, Judeo-Christian. And the idea of like Shinji having to go through all of these trials and suffer extraordinarily moral failure like failures and you know come out of it as a like shining beacon of true moralism and like what is actually good and not you know merely simply good yeah it is it's beautiful isn't it yeah I mean and the guy who's like controlling all of it he's kind of employing these like because he just basically designates who's going to be a rider. He's like selecting mm-hmm. people based on he, what he thinks will be their motivation to fight, right? Uh, and he's completely unscrupulous about this. So like, he's basically employing these kind of like almost like you know moral forces against mm-hmm. one another for his own goals, right? And like that—that's just like what the the sort of um, 
you know, there's a lot of stuff here to do with, like, the idea of contracts as well, like, contract mm. monsters and stuff like this, and this idea that, like, once you're a rider, it doesn't matter what, like, you know, it's interesting to me that, like, Shinji doesn't really seem to have a plan for how he's gonna, like, reconcile everything at the end. Like, he's fighting ostensibly to end the rider battle, but mm. it's, like, how are you gonna do that? <laughs> you know, he doesn't know. He doesn't and know, and he's like figuring the out. Moral as education goes on. is what the whole show is about. It's, yeah, and that is, I think, really rich and fascinating. And um, the moral dilemmas of all of these characters are like really rich. Um, even outside of like Ren, like some of the smaller characters, like um, Satoru, who comes in very close to the end, uh, he also is like motivated to end the writer war and close off the mirror world, but he becomes like literally sadistic and, uh, is so enmeshed in his moral plan of goodness to save the world from the mirror world that he ends up like slaughtering innocent people and like planning like the genocide of all common writers. And it's like, you see that in people's pursuit of moral goodness constantly. Like, when you yeah. are seeking out justice and heroism, I would say more often than not, you become evil and horrible and destructive. And especially in the contemporary moment where on all sides of politics, like, whether it's people screaming about Drag Queen Story Hour or trannies, or if it's on the other side and it's, you know, moral, woke scolding about the most asinine things in the world. Like, there is this sense of heroism that is, like, closing in on us and about to, like, stab us through, like, a common rider sword. And seeing that concept brutally ripped apart and uh, the characters who uh, become those, like, sadist anti-hero, uh, not in the literary sense, but literally anti-hero. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Seeing them punished for it and actually given, like, true, like, moral goodness as, like, the victory at the end is very satisfying don't you think <laughs> well i mean you know this is like we're, we're all in the mirror world <laughs> it's like i know yeah. i've been trying I, i'm yeah. trying to get the fuck out of the mirror world yeah. but like we are so in there we're all common writers yeah <laughs> like the, the twitter account is like the common writer suit um, oh my god yeah you're fucking my little cell phone is the common rider motorcycle that they use when they plunge through the mirror yeah. and then inside of the phone is the mirror world i mean i i really uh i'm also just like i don't know i don't know what like the the i, I was playing with this like the mirror thing right because mm -hmm. it's all like you know it's all these fights take place in these like weird liminal areas and one of the things that like first struck struck me about the show like the very first scene is this woman being eaten through her mirror <laughs> by like a giant cgi spider but it all begins when she like touches the mirror and it like it becomes a kind of liquid and then there's this like weird like white cgi web that's like around her neck mm -hmm. and there's just this kind of like throughout the whole thing there's this like sense of like glistening textures and mm -hmm. and there's like a, a really weird thing where it reminded me a lot of like being a kid and the kind of like fantasy role play that you engage in when, when you're a kid where yeah. people are like glimpsing monsters in like car mirrors and or like in reflections on car windows and stuff like it's so right. it's like it's never like this big dramatic entrance it's always like this weird ambiguous glint of something strange in like a in like a little streak of light Ooh. or something you know I just, got, I just got the chills yeah i like 
so much of my childhood come to think about it, especially growing up in like Oregon where there's like cars everywhere and you have you have to drive to survive. <laughs> like, yeah. If you do not drive, you won't survive. Like, <laughs> it's like... <laughs> but, like, my childhood perception of the world must have been framed so much by light reflecting out of, like, car doors and um, windows where you catch things that you don't quite see in. It really does feel like um, the the notion of a mirror world is, like the preconception of things and it's like those strange imagined universe that we all witness but can't like materially translate and the distance between that and reality so i'm sure that you know we're reading into it far too much but that's you know the most thing we do to do yeah exactly that's what i'm here for that's what you've subscribed to me on patreon for hello yeah well no, i can remember <laughs> like you know like going to see a movie when i was like a, a little kid like seven or something going to see like a mm-hmm. movie with my friend and then as we were leaving they're like there were these like tiny little lights on the seats you know and then mm. i remember my friend telling me that those lights were actually like you know like monster eyes that would like turn you to stone if you looked at them you know and then you're just kind of like oh fuck i better not look at those lights like you know like you just kind of have the capacity as a kid to like just just build fantasy out of like visual information that you're getting totally you know and like um uh part of that is just like creatively reinterpreting things that are mundane and mm. there's a bit where like a kid's uh sees shinji transform you know i think in in the series uh, yeah and the kid like goes up to this like it's one of these like little circular mirrors they put in like certain urban spaces to give you a view of like who's in the corridor or whatever Oh, yeah, and so that you, if you turn a corner, you don't run into the person who's on the other side yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. And this kid, like, runs up to this, like, little circular mirror, and it says, like, ah, oh, like, what a shiny object or something like that. And it's like, when you're a kid, you do see this kind of imaginative potential in these things, in these, like, weird objects that adults just yeah. completely take for granted. And so it feels like this whole, like, world of, like, the drama of the common Rider world, almost, like, implicitly the whole, like, the idea of Kamen Rider itself is, like, kind of leeching into the world through these, like, you know, liminal objects that are kind of, like, things that kids notice and, you know, like, uh, use as, like, objects of imaginative production. Um, so... I love that. Yeah. I love that. Henshin, I fucking love... <laughs> like, when your children be, like, looking at, like, glittering objects and be like, Henshin, like, I'm gonna be the hero. Yeah. And it's... I think, you know, to kind of get to the end of the series here, everything you're saying really resonates because the end of the series um, sees Ren and Shinji, the two, you know, main protagonists throughout the show... Uh, kind of, like, finally come to grips with one another, and for quite a while it seems that Ren and Shinji are going to try to kill each other. Yeah. Um, We haven't really mentioned Yui, who is the sister of the puppet master character, but she lives in the cafe with them, and um, she has been mysteriously fading uh, from the real world for uh, several episodes, and it is ultimately revealed that she is a creation of the mirror world. Her and her brother 
were trying to cope with their abusive parents by imagining monsters, and the psychic stress was so intense that they engendered the entire mirror world. Uh, and the stress of doing this was enough to kill uh, Yui, and so her mirror self replaced her in the real world, but would not be able to last. And so she she dies, and the puppet master this whole time has been trying to uh, use the power of the mirror world and trick people into joining it so that he could inevitably win and then bring her back to life. Um, that is very convoluted, and you'll have to watch all 50 episodes to get, <laughs> you know, the whole meaning of that. Listeners at home, you can watch it at kissasian.com, but, 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 what I find so great about this is that it deletes Common Rider from the world. It does, like, the Evangelion ending and removes Common Rider. It, um, we, we finally see... Shinji brutally die and bleed to death against a car. In a really, were you shocked by I, that? In a really it's like horrifying, undignified, um, kind of unceremonious way, where he doesn't have like this, like, uh, you know, heroic showdown or anything. He just doesn't transform in time. He gets stabbed. Get stabbed in the he back. Gets stabbed in the back. Yeah. <laughs> by a random fucking monster. Not even another common writer. It is deeply undignified. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And he's trying to he's trying to like save a little girl, right? And uh, he just doesn't mm-hmm. he just doesn't have time. He's like not on top of it, and it it like almost could have happened at any point throughout the whole series, and it just happens. And then it just does. Yeah, it just it just did happen, you know. <laughs> but and so he he like brutally bleeds out against a car, and Ren finally realizes that he has like something to fight for that you know is still with him. Yeah, uh, and so he's able to beat the the puppet master and uh make his wish to resurrect his uh own girlfriend uh but then he fucking dies at the hospital before he gets to meet her which i was obsessed with and you just see in these like last two episodes how every single character's sense of justice was like a complete you know failure and you know even the admirable people that kind of uh justice that they imagined and their will to fight, you know, led them all to, you know, miserable pain. But ultimately, the puppet master decides to reverse time as he did once before in the series and uh, let go of his sister that he loved and recreate um, the universe from before there were no common writers. Uh, what did you make of the ending here? It's like, it's it's so fascinating because it's just like, uh, just this total like medit again i just think it's total like meditation on the idea of like the common rider as this like heroic figure who's in combat mm-hmm. and i think you know one of the like minor riders who gets killed off pretty early on is um oh what was his it's like the the guy with the like the rhinoceros one oh uh, um yeah he does die really early <laughs> which one is okay, what's his name he is um, I could maybe look it up as well, actually. Because I remember because then Asakura takes it. He t- oh oh it's Guy. Yeah, Guy. It's a common writer, Guy. That's right. June. Yes, I remember him. He's another one of the sadists. Yeah, and he's like this kind of smug little kid, but in a way, he's a sort of parody of um, Yui's brother, where mm-hmm. he is also like orchestrating these games between people, which are kind of like stylized like a beat 'em up action game. Yeah, and so he's almost like. A representation of like the structural or formal conventions of like the common rider series that we're watching mm-hmm. where they're all like pitted against one another and he represents in a way that like sadistic element of enjoying the death match um and 
and then you know he gets killed off as well but like i think he is in a kind of parodic relationship with uh yui's brother who's like kind of controlling everything right so there's this like element of Mm -hmm. a kind of developing self-critique that the show is making that eventually arrives at like kind of abolishing itself you know and at, at the end it's like the only kind of um like moral resolution to be had when all of these like you know moral forces have exhausted one another um and kind of extinguished themselves is just to sort mm-hmm. of like abolish the whole thing and that actually what that ends up you know requiring is that he has to like um like let go of his sister like finally and accept accept mm-hmm. that loss right and so there's this kind of element where yui then becomes this like because she's like this kind of mirror child, right? And I think what the mirror signifies is like, I guess the like world of human imagination or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so and that's like so where she, that's where she comes from, and she's kind of like the substitute for this process of loss and and grief and whatever. And the result of him not being able to let go creates this kind of like um like gap where these mm-hmm. like monsters of imagination from these children's drawings can like come through into the world and start devouring people so the whole thing just is like this it's almost like a kind of parable about like um sort of the danger of like again really it's like a a kind of meditation on like the danger of fantasy and fantasizing about things Mm -hmm. but at the same time it integrates what's like good about fantasy as well which is just right. the thrill of and the enjoyment of it. So well, I think yeah. the fallout of nine eleven is what makes this like so convincingly successful to me. Is because they imagined and witnessed a world where justice is complicated and no one is ever right. Everyone has their own reason to fight. They have their own reason to keep living and attempt to survive, and their own sense of justice. And at the end of the day. Nobody is right. There is nothing that's completely true. And the only thing that is um, that really can prevail after that justice is abolished is uh, like love and friendship between people and being able to accept grief and tragedy and accept like the beautiful love that you do find around you. So it's a really fascinating ending um there's this really uncanny shot where we watch the older and younger versions of yui and her brother in a room filled with their imaginative oh, I like, love it, yeah. like, imaginative drawings and it's like a spooky black space um and the, the and drawings are kind of like they they almost backlit look like they're um they're like taking the place of the reflective surfaces from before mm-hmm. where they're like not mirrors or windows they're, yeah. yeah I love it and so there <laughs> we are at the end of, of fucking Kamen Rider Ryuki this has been an enormous project that's taken us months to get to and I really appreciate you taking so much time to oh, it was, voyage through this it was a pl- Any- but I have to ask you what do you fight for? what is your reason to fight? oh that's a really good question I wasn't prepared for uh, for that one um you know what, I just, like, uh, I think what motivates me, um, I don't know, at least on Twitter, at least in my, you know, common Twitter user, <laughs> like, <laughs> identity is, like, 
um, I don't know, like a sense of indignation. I feel like I can identify with Shinji in the sense that, um, uh, am I, am I, have I been using the wrong name the entire time? He's called Shinji, right? It's Shinji. Okay, oh, thank God. I just freaked out for a Would second. Would that be there. funny? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, just in the you scared me for a yeah. second. <laughs> I was um, like, oh my god. Yeah, his name is Kido Shinji. Kido, Kido. Kido. Yeah, Kido. yeah. Shinji. I think Kido suddenly came into my mind and I was like, oh fuck. But, um, yeah, <laughs> Japanese naming conventions. <laughs> yeah. Delightful. No, I think uh, I can identify with him in the sense that, like, from a teenager, I've had, like, very strong ideals about things, but they've been, like, tempered uh, by, like, the harshness of experience and. Mm there's this process where I'm, you know, you're trying to preserve that initial sense of indignation or righteousness through um, the sort of, like, the ways in which it's kind of, like, tempered or challenged by a reality, and you learn, like, that not everything works out, or, like, that's, mm -hmm. you know, you do need to develop this sense of, like, realism or... Um, you know, like, I think something that I've been thinking about a lot recently that, I, you know, for me, it's like a source of indignation is when I feel like um, it's it's not like virtue signaling, which I think is a kind of like slightly outdated concept in terms of discourse. Mm -hmm. But it's like what uh, bothers me, I think, is when I see people who are um, kind of like in in love with their sense of righteousness um or in love with their sense of indignation but they're not willing to actually like test it out in the sort of you know in the realm of experience right mm -hmm. but they're giving this advice out to people or whatever or they're like promoting these ideals but they're not like actually around when they don't when they kind of go wrong and if right. you've like tried to live out those same ideals and you've experienced the ways in which they go wrong and you've had to like modify and adjust your understanding of how things work and your place in them without actually going to an opposite extreme and just, you know, like, which is a thing that I think a, a trap that a lot of people fall into. Mm. Um, that's something that takes a lot of like hard work and adjustment and, you know, and I just like, I feel a sense of indignation on behalf of like, especially young people who I feel like are yeah. misled, right, by all the people who actually have no kind of skin in the game and they don't have anything mm -hmm. at stake, right? And, yeah, I mean, you see this with, like, a lot of, like, discourse about, like, young men, right? Like, where there's a lot of, uh, like, I, I was always such, like, a kind of sensitive, you know, like, young boy. Like, when I was a teenager, <laughs> right? Like, um, you know, I was, like, a teenage feminist and all this kind of stuff, right? And Likewise. Yeah, and it's, like, you know, it's, like... We go through this process like we didn't become like anti-woke or whatever right we just like we're trying to assimilate our experiences into a understanding of the world that makes sense and is actually like viable in some way and, and obviously like the irony of this though is that on twitter you do adopt this like extreme persona mm -hmm. right it's it is actually in the same way that like a common rider outfit is like a stylization of the human body the Twitter account is the stylization it of is. itself. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like a... Like, drag yeah. is the same thing, too, you know? Yeah, and I yeah, feel right. like drag is, is more, like, productive. And, like, I'm a, sure it is. You know, yeah. enjoyable for everyone than my, you know, nasty Twitter account. But well, everything you're saying is a really, I think, 
just thing to fight for. Hopefully it doesn't lead you into getting stabbed through the back and bleeding to death out of a car <laughs> or so eaten by a monster or um, having your serial killer brother throw you into the mouth of a monster. But yeah, I'm looking for my reason to fight. I think I have a ways to go, but... You know, I'm I'm starting over. I'm looking at the bleakness of the world around me that I'm dissatisfied with. And, you know, it's good to hear someone who has, you know, a clear idea about what they're here to fight for. And I, I think that the internet is one of the things I'm struggling with, at least partially. And it is difficult to kind of cope with your shadow selves that exist there and the extremity of your own opinion, as well as that of those around you, as well as like the lack of people applying experience, like you said, in the real world, but we are here, and as they say in this wonderful show that we've spent so much time watching together, those who don't fight won't survive. Here we go. To support the continuation of your favorite online experimental art audio project, Please pledge $5 to I'm So Popular on patreon.com slash I'm So Popular for bonus episodes of the show, the essential untucked continuation sirens, as well as access to the Discord and Chi-Chi's book club. Ja, mata ne. Okay,